Okay, let's take our Bibles out. We're going to open to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to finish uh, the passage that we began last week. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. He says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work and be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. You know, within families, we have certain areas of responsibility. I was told this last week that at the workman home, justice is responsible for the sidewalks outside the door. He keeps them shoveled. He keeps them salted so it's pretty easy to get in and out of there. And I noticed as I was there a little bit later in the week after hearing about that, I noticed the justice, you've been doing a good job. Are you hearing me? Okay. He was keeping on drawing, but I saw a little smile going on there a little bit. But I have noticed that he's doing a good job. You know, that's one of the things in a, in a family. As a family, everybody has responsibilities. You don't all have the same responsibilities, but everybody has some responsibilities. And it's no different when we look at God's family, and that's what we were considering last week, and we'll finish looking at here today. Because we're looking at the responsibilities within the family of God. Now, as we go down through this passage, he, he starts off talking about our responsibility towards our leadership, and we covered that pretty thoroughly last week. He also brings us to a, a point of recognizing our responsibility that we have to each other. And he lists this in four different ways as well. And, and I just kind of like to kind of start there and kind of review a little bit, because we were, I was kind of right toward the end, and I knew we were running out of time, so kind of rushing through it, I'd rather kind of hit those a little bit again before moving on into our responsibilities before God. But we, we see our responsibilities before one another. Uh, begins in verse 14. It says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And we recognized uh, that the first thing that we get out of our responsibility for one another is accountability. Notice within the passage there, he says, admonish the idle. The word idle there actually has a broader meaning than that. It's uh, translated in other translations as unruly. And that's, that's literally, that's what it means is unruly. The reason it gets translated idle is because the use of that word in different places looks like often idleness or laziness was the motivation behind the people being unruly. The word is a, a military term, actually. And uh, it's the idea of, if you picture a military there in formation, the idea is that you have somebody that's uh, they're becoming unruly. They're, they're breaking ranks. They're, they're turning and heading in a direction that they're not supposed to be heading. And he says, you know what? You're, you're going to have people step out from time to time that are going to begin to head the wrong direction. And, and what needs to happen at that point is there needs to be correction. There needs to be an accountability. And we saw it within the relationship to the leaders that that was part of their job to admonish. But now it recognizes that it's part of all of our jobs. And, and we talked a little bit last week about how really what we need is a lot of each other in this. 
Because we can get a little bit uh, off track sometimes. We can get our focus set maybe on some things where it shouldn't be or and something that starts to replace God in our life or something that starts to, we kind of start to go down the wrong path. And you know what? We really need to be there and hold one another accountable in that kind of way. Well, the second one that he uses is encouragement. The statement that he makes here is that we're to encourage the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted literally means small Soul. You're faint-hearted. You're kind of uh, half-hearted. You're timid about something. And he says, you know what? Sometimes people are going to be that. They're going to be a little bit faint-hearted. They're lacking strength. They're lacking courage. The word in our English translation is encourage. It used to be spelled uh, in courage, I-N. Now it's uh, E-N. But the history of the word is the, the word means to put in courage. The idea is that that you have somebody that has a task in front of them and it might just be living for God. It might be fleshing out their faith in Christ. But whatever it is, there's, there's something about them. There's a kind of a half-heartedness or a small-souledness that they just don't feel up to the task. They just don't have the courage to stand on their two feet for God and to live for God or to do whatever the task is before them. But here's the idea. What does it mean to encourage them? It means to put in courage. You know what? Sometimes we're going to have people around us, brothers and sisters in Christ, that are just coming up a little short on having enough courage to do what needs to be done. And so you know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to lend them some of ours. Right? You're supposed to come in alongside them and let your courage install courage in them to where they can rise up and do it on their own. I remember when I was in elementary school and we were playing summer baseball my dad was coaching our team, and we had two teams in our town, and there was another town bigger than us that had several teams. And You know what? The one team that we struggled with the most was the other team from our town. When we played against them the first time, they beat us pretty good. We were kind of intimidated by them. They had some pretty decent pitchers, and we were intimidated by their pitching. So toward the end of the season, it was coming back to us playing them. And if I remember right, this was going to decide who re- who won the season because we both had good seasons that year. And we're coming around to that last game of the season, and we were we were small souled, I would say. We were we were a little faint hearted. We weren't all that confident going into the game. My dad was confident. My dad was a coach. That's a good person to be confident. And you know what my you know what my dad did? My dad just took us aside and talked to the whole team at one point. And he said, you know what? I can tell you guys are a little bit intimidated. And he said, you know, I don't know why you're intimidated. Every one of you can hit off them. He said, you know what? We actually have the fastest pitcher in the league. And we did. He was a great pitcher for a sixth grader. And uh, he said, we have him. And you know who pitches to you in practice? Often we have him pitch to you in practice and you guys hit off of him. And he said there was two coaches, my dad and another guy. And he said, uh, you know, we throw to you in practice too, and we make sure that we're pitching to you faster than any other kid in the league is pitching to you so that you're ready when you stand before all of them. He said, so you know what? Every one of you can do this. You guys already hit off of pitchers that are faster and better than the ones you're going to face this week. So you can do it. And you know what? The whole attitude of our team changed. And all of a sudden, we were all like, bring it on. We were ready. And if my memory serves me correctly, we won that game. And if it doesn't, I hope my dad doesn't remind me that we lost. (laughs) But 
<laughs> but they gave us what we needed to step into the plate with confidence and to do well and to bat well. And and that's what he's that's what he's saying here. He's saying, look, sometimes you're going to have people at different times that are going to step up to the plate in life and feel very intimidated. Lend them some of your courage, like my dad lent us his. Help them to be able to stand up in just that kind of way. Now, the Greek word that's behind this word encourage is actually even broader than this. It's meant to encourage the faint-hearted like that. Other times, it's, it means to comfort or console, to bring calm. That is a great thing too, because when we are not feeling up to the task, sometimes we react different ways. Sometimes we react just kind of out of a timidity and we just get kind of shy about things. Other times we get very worked up and stressed about things. This word encompasses them both. If you're feeling not up to the task, if you're jittery about it, anxious, it will calm you. If you're faint-hearted, then it will strengthen you. The people that are around you, they're feeling not up to the task, they're probably reacting in one of two ways. Either they're shying away from it when they need to step up, or they're stressing about it. And at either rate, God is providing us the answer here, and He's saying, look, be that for them. Well, then He goes on from encouragement, and He says, help them. You kind of see it in the steps here, right? You've got one person that's going the wrong way, and what do they need? They need some correction. You've got another person that uh, they're going the right way, but they don't quite have the, the courage or the strength to do it. They need a boost. You give them a boost. And then this last one says uh, you got people that they're maybe going the, going the right way, but they need even a little more than a boost. You're going to have to get your hands dirty and get in and help those people come in right alongside them. And so God really gives us the answer to all these different needs in this section. And we find this answer among one another as all of us strive to be that for one another. And then lastly in that, it says, with all of them, be patient. And so this would kind of bring the last one. So if the first one needs some correction, the second one needs a boost, the third one needs a hand, all of them need some time. We usually want things to happen at our timing. And one of the things that's a big part of Christian growth is realizing that you know, God works on His timing. Christianity is a process of growth. That's not how you enter into it. You enter into it by being born again. You know, that's, a, that's a momentary thing. But that begins the process of Christian growth. And people grow at different rates. In fact, every individual, I would say, grows at different rates within their lifetime of following Christ. Sometimes you'll find you're growing very quickly. Other times a little slower maybe. But people grow at different rates. And you know what we need to help in all these different situations? Whether it's somebody that we're correcting or whether it's somebody that we're trying to just give that little boost that they need or we're actually in there with our own two hands helping. With each one of those people, he says, you know what we need is we need some patience. Patience means that we're slow to get angry, slow to give up. And then he kind of deals with the opposite. Because notice, what would be the opposite of patience? He says, see that no one repays evil for evil. That is like the opposite of patience. He says, you know what? None of us should ever repay anyone evil for evil. But rather, we need to do good to one another, start there, and to everyone else as well. Well, then lastly, it brings us into our last area of responsibility, and that is responsibility to God. Now, I know I don't usually say lastly this early in a sermon, and I don't want you to go thinking... <laughs> that it's just about over. I said there's a lot of information in this, and we, we've covered our responsibility to one another a little bit, so I had to have to finish that one, but now this is kind of the bulk of the passage here for us today. 
our responsibility to God. He begins in verses 16 and goes through 22. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. It starts with a perspective. Those first few things, those first three especially, really deal with what is our perspective as we face life and we deal with these challenges. Notice in all three of those things, he says, do this all the time. In other words, this is not just a simple task that he's calling them to. He's saying these three things need to be a part of your experience 24-7. Consistently, this needs to be in your life. And, and what are those three things? He says rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. I know that often we'll talk about this kind of thing and say, well, how, how do you do that? How do you do that with any, with any one of these things? How do you do that? And, but the point is, this needs to be our perspective. This needs to be how we see life. How do you rejoice when things are going in a direction that is very painful? How can you be thankful in that kind of time? I think sandwiched right in the middle is an answer that will help you. If you're in prayer and all those kinds of things, then you realize that God is connected to these things and that there isn't anything in our life that God doesn't bring in or allow. And so, God's got us in all of this. You can't rejoice all the time unless you're trusting. You can't be thankful in every circumstance unless you're operating out of faith and not just by sight. But he's telling them, look, you guys need to be doing this all the time. This needs to be your outlook on life. It needs to be joyful, prayerful, thankful. All of the time. No matter what happens in your life. No matter what circumstances, you know. We should never be under our circumstances. We're under or in Christ and we're going through circumstances. They don't dictate us. In every circumstances, we should be acting by faith and trusting in God. And what does that bring? Even in the midst of trying circumstances, it brings joy. It brings thankfulness. This is a whole different perspective on life. Are you a glass half full person or are you a glass half empty person? If you're trusting in Christ, you're a glass is full person. You're not pessimistic about the future. You're not unhopeful. In fact, he just got done spending most of the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 and pointing to our great hope that we have ahead of us in Christ and saying, therefore, encourage one another because you have a great hope. If we have such a great hope, if God is in control of all these things, then should our glass ever look half empty? Maybe we can't see everything that's involved. Maybe we don't get to have God's same perspective, but you know what? We can borrow it. And we can just say, God, you know more about this than I can see what's going on here, and I'm trusting you through this. And it can bring the joy and the thankfulness in every circumstances. We see a negative example of that within Scripture. I think back to, to Israel. God had delivered them with a mighty hand out of the nation of Egypt and brought them out, and they crossed the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army follows behind them, and God wipes out the army, and Israel is safe and secure on the other side. They have a short journey to make over to the Promised Land. He takes them to the promised land and they go in and they look at the promised land and they're small-souled when they get out of there. <laughs> they say, we can't do it. Uh, the land is everything God said it would be, but the people are big. We can't, we can't do it. And they turn their back on God. And they say, no, we won't, we won't do it. The Bible describes them as grumbling. They're not content. They're not satisfied with where God's 
brought him. He brought him out to bring him to the promised land. They rejected that idea. They rejected God. And then they don't like living in the wilderness outside the promised land. And so they're grumbling. Now they're grumbling at first. It starts to be against Moses and Aaron. But Moses and Aaron are acting under the direction of God. And so God takes it very personally. And they point out to the children of Israel that, look, you're, you're not complaining about us. You're complaining about God. You're grumbling against God. You're dissatisfied with God. And God takes that very personally. It's the opposite of trust. In Numbers chapter 14, verses 26 through 30, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of your number listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you to dwell, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Now what he's talking about there specifically is when he brought them up to go into the promised land and they rejected it, then they complained and said to Moses, you brought us out of Egypt only to die in the wilderness. Our children are going to die in this wilderness that you brought us up to. We would have been better off in Egypt and they acted like they were sitting by the Nile enjoying the beautiful sunny day when they were back there. Well, God says, alright, you've spoken it by your own mouth, except it's the opposite. God says, every one of you is going to die in the wilderness but your kids are going to go into the promised land instead of you. And so they wandered around in the wilderness for the next 40 years while that whole generation died off. And then God led their children into the promised land just as He told them at this point. You see, God took it very personally because He was providing for them and they were dissatisfied. They were grumbling about it. And God takes that very personally when we are dissatisfied with Him. Well, went on from there in verses 36 through 38. It says, And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation grumble against Him by bringing up a bad report about the land. The men who brought a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. And those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. And so when they had that incident, God told them, all of you are going to die in the wilderness. We're not going to go into the promised land now until that whole generation is gone. Very severe. And then the people, the ten guys, because they sent twelve people in to spy out the land, Joshua and Caleb, who wanted to do what God said, and the other ten, and it says that God had them all die through a plague because they had caused the rest of the camp of Israel to become faint-hearted about this and caused them to grumble against God. Now, lest we be thinking that that, well, that's the Old Testament. God doesn't act that way anymore. Unless we be thinking something like that. Remember, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthian church, looks back at this event in Numbers chapter 14 and others, and he says, you know what, we need to not forget what happened to them back there. And then he does something very interesting. He says, who were those people? Who were our fathers that followed Moses? He said, were they not under the cloud? Did they not pass through 
the Red Sea. And then he says, so then weren't they baptized in the cloud and the sea? And he says, and didn't they eat that spiritual food? Because they ate the manna that came from God and they drank from that spiritual rock. And that rock was Christ. God had Moses hit the rock the first time, brought forth water. Next time he's supposed to speak to it, but he hit it instead. Remember that? What's he doing with the Corinthians? He's saying, oh, yeah, and aren't you baptized into Christ? Don't you eat the Lord's Supper, that spiritual food? He's connecting them to the fathers back then. And he's saying, look, all them were baptized. All them ate the spiritual drink. But was their faith real? Or was their faith shown to be false by their grumbling and by their other activities? And the answer, obviously, is that it was shown to be false. Because he goes on from there and he says, now these things took place as examples. In other words, these absolutely apply to our life. We better be paying attention. In fact, he's going to repeat that toward the end as well, that these are examples. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, the point is, as we look at First Thessalonians today, we need to be thankful all the time. We need to be joyful all the time. We need to be prayerful all the time. Because... When he gets right down to the core of the issue, you know who is providing for you? It's God. So when we don't like what we have and we complain about our situation in life, you know who we're complaining about? It's God. And God takes that very seriously. Why? Because if we're complaining, we're not trusting. If we're saying, I deserve better than this, well, we really better stop and think about that one. <laughs> we don't want what we deserve. But if we're saying, I deserve better than this, and we're saying, God, you're letting me down. And that is absolutely not the case. Romans 8.28, one verse that we often like to quote when we're in trying situations, and rightly so. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. You know, I remember one time going to meet a young man from our youth group in the hospital who had cancer. And he never got more than into his early 20s. He ended up dying from it. And uh, our men's uh, Bible study, we decided we were going to go visit him in the hospital down at Mayo. We only lived about 45 minutes from there. We were in Oatana at the time. And, and on the way there, we, one of the guys had picked up a card and we're like, what, what verse do we want to write in the card? And I was like, well, Romans 8.28 sure comes to mind. That was not the verse we ended up. We ended up with a different verse. I don't remember what the verse was, but uh, somebody answered back and said, ah, that one's always on the cards. That one, we always write that one. Let's do a different one. And I was in favor of that. Let's do. Let's pick a different one. That's fine. There's many others. But you know, I got thinking about it later and thought, well, you know why that's on all the cards? Because this is really one of the truths you need to grapple with at this time. You need to recognize that God has got this. And even though you're in circumstances that you may not understand, or and even if it might take your life, you know what? God has got this. And He is, the Bible tells us, working all these things together for good for us. And that's exactly why, like in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, he connects our contentedness. In other words, we're not grumbling. We're going to be content. We're, because it is connected to the presence of God. 
In Hebrews 13, it says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I will not live in fear. I will live in rejoicing. No matter what my circumstances are, I will rejoice in it. I will be thankful in it. I will pray my way through it. Why? Because I know that God is with me and that He has got my best in mind and in action. And if i got His presence in all this, I've got everything I need. What is faith? Faith is being satisfied with all that we have and all that we are in Christ. That's what faith is. And even when we're in circumstances that we don't quite understand, we are satisfied in Him. And that's why He has us in all of these things. All of these things in our life, all of the time. That's our perspective on life. We're going to view life through, through this lens all of the time. Because we're satisfied in Him. Well, then He goes on from there. Not only does it involve a perspective, it also involves resources. Because the resources that He points out, He says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. God has given us a couple of great resources for living out this life. And one of them is the Holy Spirit. And the other one is the Word of God. And they work in tandem with one another. In fact, the Bible occasionally refers to the Word of God as the sword of the Spirit. The tool the Spirit uses within our life. And He says, do not quench it. It's like the idea that it's a fire and throwing water on it, right? He's saying when the Holy Spirit works in your life, don't don't hold him back. Don't don't put out that fire. Don't smother that fire. You know, when we're reading through the Word of God and something stands out in our life, Holy Spirit prods you and says, You need to do this or you need to change that or you need to don't throw water on that. Use that tool. And that's exactly what he gives us. He gives us these these resources. We're not supposed to quench the Spirit and we're not supposed to despise prophecy. Now at the time that this is written, prophetic utterances within the church were, a, were an ongoing thing. That kind of tapered out as He told us it would in 1 Corinthians as the New Testament was completed. And so we have the result of those prophecies involved in the New Testament and we have that Word of God. And so He says, those are the two things that guide us, the Spirit and the Word of God. As we take the Word of God and read from it and learn from it, the Holy Spirit ignites that in our heart and and teaches us those things that are spiritually discerned and we grow. Well, not only does it involve those tools or those resources, it also involves discernment. Because He says, test everything. Probably the best thing that we can do for our discernment is just to be constantly in the Word of God. I've been thrilled this year to hear, I don't know how many people have just said to me in passing in conversation, have mentioned that they've started, and the first year hit and they've started to get through the Bible in a year program or some other kind of a reading program. That's an awesome thing. The thing that I notice that triggers my discernment is that when I hear something or something or read something, uh, different verses, different passages pop into my mind from my past and current readings of Scripture, and those things pop up and say, well, well, wait a minute, that was said, what about this? How does that fit with this? Or does it even? You know, so we use those resources and that needs to lead to discernment. We are not supposed to be gullible. We are supposed to test things, to use our discerning powers that God gives us through the Spirit. In fact, John, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. You know, we were just looking today in adult Sunday school at the letter to the church of Pergamum who was tolerating a bunch of false teachings within the church. They were not being discerning. 
When we went through the book of 1 Corinthians, they were tolerating a lot of things within the church and even proud of it. And the Apostle Paul tells them, you are not being discerning. You should not be doing this. We need to be a discerning church. We need to be discerning people. And then lastly, I'd point out that it involves commitment. Our responsibility before God involves commitment. It says, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. He says you're to test everything, everything that you have that's good. Hold that. In other words, be committed to that. Hold to that. And everything that you find, you've tested it, you find it to be evil, get rid of that. So we have responsibilities within the family of God. We have responsibilities to our leaders to show respect. We have responsibility to each other that provides for us an accountability. It provides for us encouragement and help and the patience that we need to grow. We have a responsibility to God that involves our whole perspective. How do we see life? What is the lens that we view life from? We're to view it from a, a lens of looking, experiencing joyfulness and thanksgiving and constantly in prayer. We need to use the resources that God has available for us in that as the Holy Spirit and the Word of God as we exercise discernment, as we test everything. Don't swallow everything. Test it to see where it's good and then be committed to that, being committed to God.